Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 84, Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less, featuring Bob Sutton. And before we jump into this episode, Engagers, I have to share with you a note I received that just made my day. Lisa sent me a note through LinkedIn that said, I've read your ebook and I love your blogs and podcasts. I pass them along to other leaders from time to time. May the blessing of your success be the continued development of leaders that you touch, who then enhance the work environment for the people they lead. I so appreciate Lisa's heart here. I think she captures what's on my heart as well. My day-to-day work with leaders is fun and engaging, and I love helping them achieve business outcomes. But it's really all about our continued ongoing development as leaders, helping more of our people have more great days at work where they're fully engaged and fully energized, making a great contribution to the organization, loving what they do, and then going home and being better moms and dads and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and community members. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you get that. That's why we wouldn't be listening if you weren't interested in developing further as a leader and having a greater impact on the people in, that you lead and in your world. And we spend so much of our time at work, and it's more than just making money. We can really make a difference in the people we work with and the people that they touch as well. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing that. Lisa mentioned the ebook. That book is Eight Communication Tools for Leaders, Become a Better Leader in Every Area of Life. That is completely free for you. You can download that ebook right now if you go to engagingleader.com forward slash book. And while you're there, don't be shy. Feel free to uh, hit the contact button and send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Or you can click the red button that says send voicemail and record a message for me as well. Would love to hear from you. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. If you've created a great little coffee shop, how do you expand and put your coffee shops in cities around the world without watering down what makes your coffee shop great? That's a question that Starbucks certainly struggled to answer. Or if you have a key practice or mindset, for example, lean manufacturing, how do you spread that throughout your organization? It's a question of scaling up, taking a pocket of excellence and expanding it. But it's really hard. There are countless examples of organizations who try to scale up but end up just spreading mediocrity. Or worse, their efforts to expand actually ruin the organization. Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao, researchers and professors from Stanford University, spent seven years studying this very question. And now they're sharing their findings in their new book, Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. And today, we're talking to Bob Sutton himself. He's previously written six management books, including New York Times bestsellers, The No Asshole Rule, and Good Boss, Bad Boss. 
And based on what I know about Bob, I'm guessing that listening to this interview will remind you of your favorite college professors and make you wish you could go take a class with him right now. Bob Sutton, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. It's nice to talk to you, Jesse. I'm happy to be here. Bob, this is a quite a different book than a lot of business books out there. In fact, it was rather challenging to read because there's so many great tips and stories, but you don't actually reduce this problem of scaling up to a set of, let's say, seven principles that follow these and uh, go down the yellow brick road and all will be well. Why is that? Well, so it's interesting. I, I, I love this question, by the way. Um, it's interesting because we started out thinking maybe we're going to write a book that was about half the length of the current book that did exactly that. But the way that we did this book, and I, I really like this question, and the reason I really like this question is we tried that. And But the way that we did this book compared to other books that I've done, let's take a simple book like The No Asshole Rule, where I talked to some people, but just sort of just wrote a short book about what I think you should do if to create an asshole-free organization. Um, but in this case, um, if you look at the cast of characters we talked to, everybody from Louise Lang at uh, Kaiser Permanente um, to senior executives like Ed Catmull at Pixar to the folks at uh, Facebook, uh, especially Chris Cox, who's had a product, lots of other folks, we realized that uh, creating a simple recipe was actually destructive because it was just, in my view, it was dishonest. Um, so so it, I, we tried to write a book that was, if it was user-focused, human-focused, that rang true to people who were in the middle of a scaling exercise. And I don't, I don't believe that there's any such thing as these are the seven steps you take and, and you will succeed. There are certain themes and certain principles that I think that people can follow certain sort of mindsets, but the idea of a one-size-fits-all cookbook, um, I think, is dishonest. And frankly, if, if I would look to look at books like Good to Great, and you know, Tom Peters um, endorsed our book, and even uh, Tom Peters, as much as I love him, he's a sweet guy, this idea of the sort of the cookbook and the nine things, if you do them, you'll succeed, there's no evidence to support that any of those books help. So we tried to treat it um, in a more complex way, and and we kept presenting the ideas to people who were in the middle of scaling or were scaling veterans and tried to come up with something that rang true to them and reflected the complexity of what they did. So we can talk about some of the key lessons that come from the book, but at the same time, I guess my perspective is I've already had a bestseller that had an oversimplified idea, and I may write other books again, but in this case... The most important thing to us was to write something that captured the complexity of the problem. And I'm, I'm really sorry, dear managers, but if you're in the middle of one of these problems, you've got to create your own takeaways because every situation is different enough. So some of the specific things might, might be uh, things that people do wrong in scaling that they might want to work on, team size we might talk about. But uh, the seven magic steps that will work for everybody I don't see it. This problem's too hard. And I think it would have been dishonest to do otherwise. And also just wasn't feasible when we started presenting people who they'd say that's not that's too simple. So so this was a book. Of, it's a human centered design or user centered design for people who are knee deep in the middle of scaling. That's who our target customer is. One of the big principles that you start out with, I think, kind of captures that complexity when you talk about 
this being a ground war and not an air war. Can you explain that for us? Sure. So one of the things that we would see in a lot of scaling exercises that were not successful, one that's actually at the back of the book, since we can all relate to it, was uh, TSA, the people who screen us with our luggage. <laughs> they decided, and, they, and the general concept was right. They decided that if they had, uh, the people who screened us had more empathy for us as, um, as people who are going through and were more in tune with our emotions, two things would happen. One is it would, in general, the screening environment would be calmer. And when the screening environment is calmer, one of the analogies they use is you can sh um, spot a shark fin easier in a smooth ocean than a rough ocean. And then the other one was that they just thought that it would be a better experience for everyone. Well, this sounds like a great concept. And they trained all of them, some 50,000 agents for four hours each, and they did nothing to follow up. That, to me, is the total air war mentality. We're going to drop the bombs on all 56,000 of them, and magically their behavior is going to change. So but what happens when we see scaling that works, in the, and, and there's, we have hundreds of examples of that happen, happen in our life. We, we want to have a quality movement, so you have everybody go through quality training. Uh, you want to make people more innovative. So what happens is that you have Huggy Rauer, Bob Sutton, come and give a speech about innovation. And people, I, I, as soon as they say this, I know it's not going to work. And then we hope they'll be more innovative at their desks. There's no support for them being innovative. There's no training. There's no community of people. And to us, that's all air war sort of mentality that this sort of thin coat of peanut butter does not work. The reason it's a ground war is when we see excellence spread, everything from the way that uh, Facebook maintains its move fast and break things uh, culture to the way that Procter & Gamble spread innovation practices throughout its organizations to the way that Wyeth spread a lean movement. What happens is that um, people in the organization go through the effort to create a pocket of real excellence, get that thing humming, and then create the next one, and then create the next one and use one to infect the other. We call this the connect and cascade process. And uh, that's also why we've got this, speaking of chapter one, we've got something called a cluster fug. That's F-U-G, we're censoring. <laughs> and in situations where people um, suffer from three symptoms, and this is the TSA one, unfortunately, actually reflects this, where they, they, they're impatient, They've got illusions about how easy it is to spread excellence. And also, they are incompetent, so therefore they turn others incompetent. That's where we've got a cluster fug in its, into us. That's the kind of situation that, that, that creates bad decisions, the, the, the sort of patience that's required to spread excellence. So, uh, so, so I guess you know, our, our messages are, and I'm really sorry that like, we're not going to give you any instant takeaways in this isn't easy and you got to work hard at it for a long time. But um, we, we studied this long enough when we see the, the senior executives and executive teams who actually do this and succeed at it, that's how they behave. That's what we see at Facebook. A.G. Laffley at Procter & Gamble, one of our one of our heroes, I already mentioned Louise, Louise Lang, who uh, did an incredible rollout at um, Procter, not Procter & Gamble, at, at Kaiser Permanente, the largest um, private healthcare system in the United States, rolled out the essentially the, the computerized um, patient records so that both um, physicians and, and, and customers could use it online, the first really decent one that was done. And in those cases, they were patient and they took a long time and made sure that they created a pocket of excellence and then spread it. So uh, so, so in all those cases, it's a ground war. It, it's, it's not um, just an air war. 
And uh, yeah, so so I so it is interesting in terms of the reaction to this book. Um, for a light, easy read, it's not right, but it, but it's also, and I can't name most of the organizations. I can name some of them. Um, uh, Pixar is one example. Um, the, the Girl Scouts of, of uh, in the United States too, of organizations that we really do get um, senior interest, and in. we really do work with them to try to get them to make changes that actually entail creating and spreading excellence, and that's what our goal is. And for us, the book is just sort of a symbol or a totem of that journey. Well, let's talk about that the story you mentioned with Kaiser Permanente. Sure. And um, I'm just going to start call, just saying KP because I, I get so tongue-tied on that name. But it's a, yeah, yeah, Kaiser Permanente is hard to say. They were Kaiser, then they were Kaiser Permanente, and now they're KP. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're, that's a great story that I think tells both of the complexity that's involved in scaling up as well as it, it, it illustrates some of the principles that you uncovered there. You, First of all, this huge challenge that they faced in getting this huge health system to uh, work more integrated and to uh, get on on board of having a common online health records and to have this vision toward the the future where a lot more healthcare was going to be happening at the home. And they'd been trying this for ten years. In in one type of rollout or another, kept failing, and so now we. we we basically say, okay, let's do this the right way. And um, as you said, you, you mentioned that they, first they found the pocket of excellence, which was what they were doing at Hawaii. And why, why is that important? So, so first of all, to back up, and then we'll get to Hawaii. In that case, Louise Lang, who's the physician who, who led this quite a, I've talked to Louise, Louise extensively, quite an impressive person. Um, Louise's team, she's called the Tiger Team, they started out by, by saying, well, we're going to have a general sort of switch in mindset. And this was about 10 years ago when they started this. So it's more controversial than it is now, where they wanted to change from, if you will, the hospital and offices hub to the home is hub for healthcare. That was the mindset shift. And you think about it, I mean, that's largely happening for many of us. A lot of what I do with my doctor and, and stuff is I just write them emails or something and they send it back and I don't even have to go in. And they, and, uh, but, but, but that's, that's what sort of the concept was. So they had to switch to that mindset. And, and um, as part of it, so Kaiser is a huge system. They've got nine different regions. And, and what they needed to do was to create one place where they really got the thing humming. Again, this pocket of excellence, not a thin coat. So they went to Hawaii, which is the smallest region. And then what they also did, the, a cooperative region. And also Louise had friends there because she'd worked there earlier in her career. So a whole bunch of things were loaded up there. And as she said, it was as far away from headquarters as they could just about get. <laughs> so if things get wrong, people in the parent organization couldn't see too much, which is, you know, sometimes that's important. Um, but it actually turned out to be quite successful. So they got Hawaii humming and they did things like I love how they put on guardrails that, that that she called there had to be some constraints on which uh, software people used. Very important constraints like like uh, physicians had to or nurses had to return your email as a patient, your inquiries as a patient within 24 hours. But they really got this thing humming. And, and, and that, but the, set, the next couple of stages are even more important for the connect and cascade process. And as you say, there's so much going on here, it's ridiculous in terms of it being done well. Well, when they went to the next region, which I may be wrong, but I think was Northern California, what they did was, well, they brought along, in addition to the Tiger team and some consultants, 
the folks from Hawaii to help with the implementation. And then there was a final key sort of um, three weeks when they rolled it out. Well, they not only had the folks from Hawaii and the consultants there, they had the next region after that, um, which I believe was Southern California, but that may also be wrong. Um, that So that essentially the people who were going to be getting it the time after that could see how it worked and also help implement it. So if you will, you've got the past, the present, and the future in each case. So from, from in terms of spreading excellence, I, I do think it's a model for doing a whole bunch of other different things and that you're connecting and cascading excellence, but you're also thinking about where you're going now and where you're going to be in the future. And then constantly getting together and talking about what can we do differently so it works even better next time or what imp improvisations can we make on the spot. And there's a whole bunch of other things, everything from the way that onboarding works at Facebook to the way that uh, Wyeth uh, uh, made huge cuts, about 25% um, cut in cost and increase in quality across their pharmaceutical manufacturing system. But, but I think you're right. If I was going to pick one core case that shows good scaling principles, that one would be pretty good. So having Hawaii as sort of this initial pocket of excellence, uh, that was helpful in a few ways. One of which was that you it allowed KP to to show everybody here is a complete model that's put together, and here's how it works, as opposed to trying to scale something immediately company wide based on theory. Um, so sort of like what Apple would do with the, when they with their Apple store. They, they created a, a prototype, if you will, and everybody could look at that and see that it worked and then go scale it or, or almost replicate it, if you will. So the Apple store, it's interesting. We don't talk about the Apple store in the book, but, but I know a fair amount about the Apple store because it was here in Palo Alto. And, um, and a bunch of uh, folks, well, there was actually one guy who was involved when there was two Apple stores, one guy who was running one of them, um, and I can't use their name because Apple is so secretive they would shoot people. This guy isn't even there anymore. <laughs> but I talked a lot in, in early stages and also you heard the rumors and stories. And, and, and all, one of my relatives also worked there. And Jobs would do weird things. It's interesting. That they, put, they picked a location that was only about four blocks from his house. So he was always walking in there and looking behind the scenes. He'd come in late at night. And, you know, there was various famous temper tantrum stories. And, and, and one of the ones that I heard from multiple sources, and I, and I believe this is true, is that early on, you know, the, the way that Steve was about little details of human experience were, was both terrifying and brilliant. And one of the, as I say, one of the stories that I, is, is not published anywhere, but I think is, is uh, pretty well um, documented, I could uh, find the source if I needed to, is that there was a woman who, uh, when they were on the verge of opening the store, ordered a bunch of really cheap bags, okay? Because, you know, if you're an MBA, you run the spreadsheet, you buy the cheapest bags you can get, and Jobs fired her and said these bags are shit, and when people leave, <laughs> what they should do is they should have a bag in their hand that feels like this is a really high-quality bag. I bought something good. And if you think about it, especially thinking about the Apple brand where they're um, even now not competing on price, they're competing on the feeling that you've paid more and you've gotten something better, the bag is the last thing you touch. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sort of brilliant from understanding the human experience of leaving a store, especially the kind that Steve wanted to design in. And Steve almost... Um, you know, if you've talked to people, uh, uh, Adam Lashinsky, who's uh, written extensively about Apple and has uh, better inside contacts than anybody I know, Jobs almost never asked about how much things cost. He just wanted to do great stuff and figured everything else would follow. 
And and to go back, that Apple store was, uh, you know, you, you don't usually have the CEO coming by four times a week and yelling at you half the time um, when you got um, the first pro- prototype of a store. And he, remember, remember, he was also CEO of Pixar during that time. He had a few other things to do, but he was quite obsessed with that store. You know, another uh, principle from the book is this, you, you call it deciding where you're going to be on the spectrum of Buddhism versus Catholicism. And I, I think the KP story illustrates that a little bit as well. Yeah, so so the KP is interesting because what we mean by Buddhism versus Catholicism is, is and, and this follows from actually a local venture capitalist named Michael Deering. It's his distinction, but I think it works. And by the way, he's a devout Catholic, was raised one, um, and was he likes to say he was altar boy of the month many times. So, uh, <laughs> so, so he's somebody who in some ways understands Catholicism. And, 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 and for us, Catholicism, and this is an oversimplification, would be a focus on replication across settings, doing the same thing in the same way everywhere else, versus Buddhism, which is having a vague sort of mindset and implementing it in a way that fits both local needs and also even preferences. So it's basically replication versus adaptation, as they say in, in, in the organizational literature. And at Kaiser, 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 KP or Kaiser Permanente had a history of the nine regions was could each do it any way they wanted. And there was very, very little coordination or consistency of brand across them. And so what they had to do was they had to put on, if you will, some guardrails so that there was they were moving, if you will, tilting towards Catholicism because they were sort of out of control. And just to give you one thing that they insisted on that had not been done in the past was they insisted that whether, you let's just say, you were dealing with Kaiser in Southern California in your online or you were dealing with, with a Kaiser in, in Hawaii or another region, that you had the same online experience and all the branding was the same. That's to bring a little bit more consistency and the rules were the same. So no matter what region you were in, your your physician or the, the healthcare provider would respond within 24 hours. It, and so, so this is the idea of bringing a little bit more consistency across the organization. And we do believe to some extent in this notion that you do have to have local adaptation. And you already talked about this with the um, Apple Store, but one of the findings, so if you want me to be specific, even though I'm hesitant to give people, yes, these are the one-size-fits-all principles, on average, it's easier to start with kind of a fixed or sort of Catholic template, and then as you roll it out, see how it has to be changed so it fits different marketplaces, because otherwise it's kind of messy, you don't know what is going on. And you use the example of Starbucks. Howard Schultz did something quite brilliant, which was when he set up his first coffee shop, uh, it wasn't called Starbucks, it was called something else in uh, in uh, Seattle. What he did was he just imported basically an Italian coffee shop, like from Italy, with the sort of stand-up bar and the blaring opera music. And as he saw things that needed to be adjusted for the U.S. culture, at least in Seattle, like giving people chairs to sit in, getting rid of the blaring op- opera music and putting in sort of jazz and the like, then he could adjust and see what didn't work. Uh, some of the the worst sort of prototypes is when you sort of theoretically get together and put together something you think is fabulous and then just sort of roll it out without having tested it and having a full working integrated prototype, such as the first Apple store, such as Hawaii, such as the first Starbucks in Seattle. So, so even though we're all for local adaptation and sometimes that's necessary, uh, starting out with a with with a model that's relatively integrated that you understand is often the solution, and not starting out too big. 
But you're asking great questions, by the way. You're one of the more informed interviewer, interviewers I've had. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, there's a lot of material in the book, so it makes it easy. Yeah, yeah, wait, yeah but, but you don't want to know the percentage of people in the press who do not read books that they interview you about. So, so I always assume my interviewers haven't read it, so I greatly appreciate it. Oh, glad to. Well, there's this one aspect to, to scaling that would seem simple, which is just plastering your logo and... I guess totally going to the, the Catholicism perspective, or at least the impression of Catholicism because your logo is plastered on it and you maybe you gave a speech or something. But it's a number of your principles really get into why it, it requires getting down to real people and real emotional triggers and so forth. And you use the, the, the term a lot, uh, connecting cascade and a lot of times you just hear people talk about your organizations talking about hey we're, we need to cascade this through the organization but you take pains to always say connecting cascade what's the what's the clarification there well connecting cascade to us means and, and some of it depends on how simple or complex what you're spreading is but but um, the way that organizations work I mean we see the organization chart but there's also networks of relationships and and you you have to create a situation where goodness spreads, where uh, where the, the the people who have it have some depth of human relationship with the people who are going to be using it. So let's to to be concrete. And and, and there's a range here. If you're going to spread something complicated, we've already talked about like uh, maybe opening the next Starbucks store. One example we should talk about just because it's fun: how they do onboarding at Facebook. Uh, the way they do onboarding at Facebook is if you're brought in as a new engineer, they have something that's called a boot camp where they run you through a six-week experience, and they don't even know what job you're going to take as an engineer. You're given a mentor, and um, in the process, you work on 10 or 12 different projects for diverse Facebook groups. So you're having these kind of intense connections with these people, and what you're learning, in addition to understanding more about how the co whole code base works, you're kind of learning to live the move fast and um, break things mindset at Facebook. So in the process of sort of connecting and cascading and a bunch of different experiences, you're kind of getting brainwashed in the Facebook way of doing things. And so, so that's a relatively complex sort of behavior. And certainly we've already talked about moving um, the KP Health Connect system from Hawaii, let's just say to Northern California. That was an intense sort of set of behaviors, a lot of technologies, but sometimes things are simpler. And as long as there's some social conduit to make it work, it's okay. So one of the examples we also use as a simple behavior was in Iraq, there was a sort of group of soldiers, they were driving along one day, and they noticed that when, you know, the enemy threw these hand grenades, they're called RKG-3 hand grenades, old Russian hand grenades that the enemy had a lot of in Iraq, that when it hit something soft, it didn't blow up. So what they did was they mounted something, and there's pictures, we have this on the web somewhere, um, something on the side of their truck that looked like a trampoline, and it actually worked. The terrorists or the, you know, the enemy threw the hand grenade, it bounced off and didn't blow up. There's something called the, the Army Center for Lesson Learns, because that's a relatively simple sort of thing. There was some, some kind of trampoline would work and there's certain ways to mount it, but it wasn't that complicated. So within just a couple of months, some variation of those trampolines spread throughout Iraq because um, there was social connection between what happened in just one unit 
and through uh, and, and the soldiers throughout Iraq. So so we always say if there's disconnection, it, it, the, the excellence in an organization can spread. But but again, the, the more complex the behavior and the more enduring behavior that is required, uh, the more there needs to be that ongoing sort of connection so that people will put social pressure on, on one another to do the right thing. But that's why we call it Connect and Cascade. And to your point, Sometimes the behavior does cascade down from the top of the organization, but it also comes from many other different directions sometimes. And I think that this this example in Iraq with the sort of trampolines on the side, although there was an organizational mechanism in place to help with spreading the knowledge, it didn't come from the top at all. It spread sideways, as it often does. Now, in the book, you provide a number of different ways to connect and cascade so that you're not just sending key messages through the organization, but you're actually um, leveraging the network and building through relationships. But it's interesting, you have a couple of things that you say about using those. I think one of them is one one isn't enough. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially if, if it's complicated, if it's at all a complicated um, behavior or one that requires a little bit change in how you think about the world, that multiple exposures is the hallmark of how people tend to change their behaviors and learn skills. So, I mean, even even if you think about it, I'm even thinking about the simple example we used at, at Verizon where the president tried to get people to start texting. It's kind of funny, it was so long ago that they had this feature they were trying to get people to pay extra money for called texting and nobody was using it. So what he did was he started sending people texts and nagging people about um, sending texts and congratulating them for sending texts. And it and once was not enough, but 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 once he nagged people enough and they started nagging one another and he'd go to company meetings and, he, and any meeting he went to, he'd say, how many of you have sent a text? You know, two people would raise their hands and the next time six people would raise their hands. And so, so that's part of it in terms of spreading a simple behavior. And the other way in which once is not enough, and this is important for leaders, even of organizations that aren't very big, I'm talking about leaders of organizations as small as 100 or even 50, is sometimes when an executive is in charge or a manager, they think if they say something once, then they think that their people should just do it both because they mean it and they'll remember it. But if you look at the hallmark of what great leaders do of even small teams, large organizations, is they say the same relatively small number of things over and over again, um, both to show that they're important and also because people forget that even in an organization with 40 or 50 people, let's say, that even though they might have said it 10 times to one person, it might be another person's first time. And one of the guys in the book, and I can't remember how whether this made it in, in the book or not, this guy's name is John Lilly. John's interesting guy is now a venture capitalist. But John was CEO of a company called Mozilla, which for those of us who know the Firefox browser, they're the they're they're a for-profit organization wholly owned by a nonprofit, not an an ordinary organization. But John, when John got there as CEO, they had about 12 people. And then he, when he left, there was about 500 people. And John said that as as the company grew, he realized that he had to say fewer and fewer things and say them over and over and over again because he's always with different audiences. And if he and if he used too many different messages, he'd have two problems. First of all, 
people wouldn't hear him say it and wouldn't believe it. And second of all, since the organization was always shifting and growing, a lot of times, even though he'd send it, said it a hundred times, it was the first time for many people. And he also had to show them that when it was a particularly important initiative, that if he changed subjects too often, they would start thinking, oh, this too shall pass. So he said, I got, um, from my perspective, my job got less and less interesting because I just said the same thing over and over and over again. And, and if you talk to the CEO of a really large company like A.G. Laffley, um, or in the old days, Jack Welch, both, I've heard um, both of them uh, joke in various ways that, that, you know, I did like three things as CEO. I just said it over and over and over again every day until it was done. But that's what effective executives do at, at all levels. That's a, that's, that's a challenge. And to find different ways to say it, to keep it fresh. Boring, too. Yeah. It's boring. I get that, that, that. That's what. So there's certain things about that. You know, those senior jobs are actually kind of boring because it's like you're like a you're literally like a broken record or you're not doing your job. It's kind of funny. Yeah. And, and yet you've in the book, you highlight some of the creative ways that they, I guess, found to say those same things, because you also mentioned just doing it one way is not enough either, that if you can either use different media to reach people or uh, different because different people remember different things and different people will be in tune to different ways to doing things. So if you're, maybe you might have a, a big event or you do like a boot camp at Facebook or you do uh, certain types of videos. Uh, I know IDEO is, uh, it has been big on that, but finding different ways to say those simple messages uh, can, can help that connecting and cascading. Yeah, yeah, it, it reinforces it. And, and Huggy has got a great line, which is that, uh, you know, we human beings, we learn um, and, and are persuaded by different things. So providing different on-ramps for people is, is sometimes um, quite helpful. You know, just to that point, just for certain types of training, there's some of us who like online education. There's some of us who like to read. There's, there's some of us who like to actually go to a class. So providing different, uh, different ways that fit somebody's personality is probably um and also skills is, is probably the best way to do it. But but I, I just always think it's kind of funny that this notion that senior executives uh, do exciting things and they're always changing strategies, not the good ones. The good ones don't change strategy that often. Uh, what they do is they come up with a relatively simple strategy and just beat people over the head with it until it's actually done. Bob, one final question. What is the number one biggest mistake people make and organizations make when they're scaling up? Well... So we call scaling the problem of more because, you know, you're just adding more people, more teams, more of the, going more places. And, of course, there's lots of mistakes that they make. But if I was going to pick one that uh, actually has a simple solution and organizations don't seem to be able to control themselves, it's team size. The evidence we have, say the difference between an 11-person team or, or a four or five-person team, is that an 11-person team is magnitudes less effective exponentially less effective on multiple dimensions. First of all, what ends up happening with say an 11 person, let alone a 20 person team compared to a four person team is you spend in an inordinate amount of time on coordination tasks, even getting the team together um, just from meeting takes forever and you spend much less work time actually doing the work. And the worst part is that the interpersonal dynamics of being in a large team um, are very, very difficult. So think of going to dinner with four people versus 15 or 20 people. It's impossible to have one conversation. You end up having to have multiple conversation or everybody is silent. Just a few people talk the most. 
So if you look at the most effective teams for actually doing work, not an informational um, meeting, they tend to be four-person teams, and that's that's why McKinsey has four-person consulting teams. That's why the U.S. Navy SEALs um, do combat in four-person teams. That's why uh, places like Amazon and Intuit, they have the two-pizza rule for five-person teams. So, you know, my line always is if you think you're on a destructive team and you've got a lousy leader, count the number of people, and if the number is over seven or eight, try splitting it in, in half. You might be amazed by how much smarter people get the exact same people by making it smaller. And yet that seems to go so contrary to the newer style of flatter, less hierarchical organizations. Yeah, well, so so, so I've I've had a lot of issues around this. So yes, it does go contrary. and, and, And flatness is not like always goodness. But there are examples of if you have a flat organization with lots of different teams, even if those teams are small, as long as there's some way to have some coordinating mechanism across the teams, it still can be effective. They don't necessarily run counter to each other. One of the organizations we talk about in the book, Salesforce.com, had a quite flat organization, actually. And one of the ways they made things work, although they rolled up from, it was five, 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 five. So so there were there, there were some, uh, if you will, a little steeper than some organizations. But, but the main way they were able to avoid having too much hierarchy or too many rules, even though they had a lot of five-person agile teams, was they were all in the same time rhythm. So they'd have a daily morning stand-up meeting. They, they'd have to have a have uh, some sort of um, demo every week. They'd have to have a prototype every month and they'd all ship product every three or four months. It's four months actually. And by having everybody in the same rhythm, it was a coordination mechanism. But you know, this notion that um, flatness, empowerment, lack of process, lack of hierarchy is all better. uh, That's another thing that uh, those are just myths. Uh, Yes, you don't want an overly rigid organization, but you need some of that stuff to uh, move forward, especially as your organization gets larger. Good. Well, the book is Scaling Up Excellence. It's not necessarily a blueprint for how to scale up, but it's uh, several principles as well as, I would say, litmus test that you would probably want to apply at different places in your journey to kind of make sure you're on the right track. Bob, how can folks find out more about you and your work and about this book? Um, well, so there's a, there's a couple places to go. Um, first of all, I do have a blog, bobsutton.net. And, and then the other thing is, and I, and I don't even know how to say the URL, you just type uh, Bob Sutton um, influencer into LinkedIn. So I'm starting to do more writing on LinkedIn, which I, I find quite a nice platform to write on. And then I also blog some at the Harvard uh, Business Review. So, so it's pretty easy to find out more, more information about the book. And, uh, and, and we'll continue. This, is, this book is, is, as I would say, sort of a totem of our progress thus far. We will continue the learning journey. So if, if you keep an eye on the places that we write and speak, you'll notice that uh, we'll, hopefully we'll be adding new messages and new lessons as well. So for us, this is sort of a journey because we, we think uh, after both of us, many years we've been academics and, and the, uh, the longer we're involved with organizations, the more our goal is, is to try to do stuff that has impact and actually reflects the experience of real real uh, managers and real executives who uh, who who are presented with difficult problems. So uh, so hopefully you'll see some new stuff in addition to some um, ideas in the book that we talk about. And it looks like you tweet a lot uh, at work underscore matters. 
Yeah, work under storm matters. Yeah, that, that, that's that's what I do when I should be writing in, <laughs> instead of actually doing my work. But yeah, I, 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 Twitter is perfect for me because I have a short attention span. <laughs> so we I know Twitter. We know when you're procrastinating and what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Or sometimes when I finish something, I tweet it out. But usually I'm procrastinating. <laughs> well, Bob Sutton, author of the new book, Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. Thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thanks, Jesse. I, I really liked how thoughtful your questions were. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. And we'll provide the links that Bob mentioned and his contact information on our show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash eight four as in episode 84. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 